0: Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. On today's episode, we covered the Supreme Court's review of copyright laws, Discovery Rule, social media regulation cases, IPO market trends, and GOP legal bill debates. Let's remember the math textbook was sad because it had so many problems and read today's legal news. On this day in legal history, February 26th, we mark a significant national moment with President Abraham Lincoln's signing of the National Banking Act into law in 1863. This significant legislation established the framework for the American banking charter system, introducing a standardized currency and founding the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, or OCC, within the Treasury Department. Aimed at consolidating the nation's financial resources to support the Union's efforts during the Civil War, the act encouraged banks to invest in federal rather than state bonds. Despite its noble intentions to unify the banking system and raise funds for the war, the act fell short of its financial goals, leading to its refinement and eventual replacement by the National Banking Act of 1864. This initial attempt at banking reform, however, laid the groundwork for the modern American financial infrastructure and represents a foundational moment in U.S. legal and financial history. The Supreme Court's deliberation on the copyright damages case, Warner Chappelle Music Inc. v. Neely, brings into focus the application of the discovery rule in copyright law, a principle allowing for the pause of a statute of limitations when a violation cannot be timely discovered. This principle was scrutinized during the oral arguments of February 21st, with the court reevaluating its presence in copyright legislation amid Justice Antonin Scalia's historical skepticism, where he likened it to bad wine of a recent vintage. The justices, particularly Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch, hinted at the possibility of deferring the decision pending the resolution of another related case, Hearst Newspapers, LLC v. Martinelli, to first determine the fundamental applicability of the discovery rule to copyright law. Despite the circuit court's unanimous agreement on some form of the copyright discovery law, its application remains inconsistent and unclear, fueling ongoing debate among copyright lawyers. The Supreme Court's current review could redefine the rule's existence and application, influenced by a contemporary inclination towards a more textual interpretation of laws and less reliance on circuit court consensus. The controversy stems from Neely's lawsuit against Warner, alleging unauthorized use of his music rights acquired in 2008, which he discovered only in 2016 due to personal circumstances. The 11th Circuit's stance recognizing the discovery rule allowed for a broader scope of damages, challenging Warner's appeal and the Supreme Court's previous rulings that rejected other discovery rules. The timing of the court's consideration of Warner's case, juxtaposed with the pending Hearst petition, raises speculation about the justice's strategic approach to resolving the underlying legal question of the discovery rule's relevance to copyright law. The Supreme Court's decision could potentially consolidate or hold off on Warner's case in anticipation of addressing the broader issue in Martinelli, indicating a strategic pause to ensure a comprehensive examination of the discovery rule's place in copyright jurisprudence to begin with. This case highlights a pivotal moment in copyright law where the Supreme Court's verdict could either affirm the circuit court's stance on the discovery rule or upend prevailing interpretations, significantly impacting copyright plaintiffs' ability to claim damages for late-discovered infringements. The outcome could redefine legal strategies and principles surrounding copyright claims, emphasizing the court's evolving stance on statutory interpretation and legal precedence. The Supreme Court is poised to examine two significant cases that originate from Florida and Texas, both challenging state laws designed to regulate social media companies and their content moderation practices. These laws, advocated by Republicans as measures against the perceived censorship of conservative viewpoints by tech giants, have stirred a broad coalition of opponents from across the political spectrum. Advocacy groups ranging from the Libertarian Goldwater Institute to the Progressive Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, alongside national security officials from various administrations, have submitted amicus briefs. These briefs collectively caution against these laws, arguing they threaten free speech and could hinder efforts to manage harmful content online. The contested laws prohibit major social media platforms from censoring content based on viewpoints, demanding transparency in content moderation processes. However, appellate courts have delivered divergent opinions on their legality, highlighting a deep rift over how these regulations intersect with the First Amendment and the rights of private companies versus the public interests. The U.S. Supreme Court's intervention in Moody v. Netchoice and Netchoice v. Paxton seeks to address this legal discord, with implications far beyond the ideological battle lines initially drawn. Proponents of striking down or cautiously reviewing the laws argue they could restrict the ability of social media firms to curb hate speech and harassment, disproportionately affecting minorities and potentially compromising public safety through the unchecked spread of dangerous content. The wide array of organizations opposing the laws underscores the complexity of balancing free speech rights with the need for responsible content moderation on digital platforms. Despite their political origins, the cases challenge the court to make a nuanced judgment that transcends partisan divisions, focusing instead on the broader implications for individual rights and societal welfare. In response to a sluggish initial public offering or IPO market, companies are increasingly leveraging cornerstone investors to mitigate the risks associated with going public. These investors commit to purchasing shares early on, often at a more favorable value, and are highlighted in the IPO prospectus, providing a level of confidence and stability to the offering. Notably, Cornerstone investors played a significant role in nearly all large IPOs in 2023, a trend expected to continue as the market regains momentum. Despite a significant drop in IPO activity last year, with the total value of IPOs hitting a decade low, Lawyers remain optimistic about a revival in offerings across various sectors, including consumer retail, tax, energy, and infrastructure by 2025. Reddit Inc.'s recent filing for an IPO and successful listings by BrightSpring Health Services Inc. and CG Oncology Inc. signal a potential uptick in market activity. Legal practices are poised to benefit from an increase in IPO-related work, especially after relying on litigation and bankruptcy practices to sustain demand amid last year's downturn. Cornerstone Investing, gaining prominence since regulatory changes in 2019, has become a strategic tool for de-risking IPOs in a challenging market environment. Companies like Arm Holdings PLC have successfully utilized Cornerstone Investments to attract significant attention to their IPOs, securing major clients like Apple Inc., NVIDIA Corp., and Alphabet Inc. as investors. While the broader market conditions remain challenging, with many companies postponing public offerings due to low valuations and high borrowing costs, the strategic use of cornerstone investors offers a pathway to liquidity and public market entry, particularly for firms in the biotech, health, and energy sectors that require substantial capital for growth and development. (laughs) Henry Barber, a Mississippi committeeman for the Republican National Committee, or RNC, has proposed resolutions aimed at halting the party's financial support for Donald Trump's legal battles as he faces numerous criminal trials and civil case judgments. These resolutions also seek to enforce the RNC's neutrality in the presidential race until a candidate secures the necessary delegates for the nomination. Barber's initiative reflects a desire to redirect the party's focus towards winning elections rather than financing legal fees for its leading candidate, emphasizing that Trump should independently manage his legal challenges. To advance these resolutions to a vote among the RNC's 168 committee members, Barber must secure two co-sponsors from at least 10 states by a specified deadline. Despite predicting their likely defeat if brought to a vote, this move underscores a broader debate within the party regarding its support for Trump, who remains a dominant figure seeking to consolidate his influence, evidenced by his campaign's significant legal expenses and his efforts to position allies, including Lara Trump, in key RNC roles. The discussion around the RNC's financial involvement in Trump's legal issues comes as the former president continues to assert his innocence amidst accumulating legal and financial pressures. This internal party challenge coincides with Trump's campaign to reinforce his status as a Republican presidential nominee against potential contenders like Nikki Haley, highlighting the intricate balance between party loyalty, legal entanglements, and the broader electoral strategy against Democrats. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics touched on today are in the show notes. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we cheer appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. But remember, nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it is certainly not that. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever you get your finely crafted podcasts. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email newsletter form. We'll see you back here tomorrow, and until then, remember, I have a joke about construction I wanted to put here, but I'm still working on it.